You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Thank you, worship team. Woo! (laughs) Well, good morning uh, once again. If you're new here, special welcome to you. Um, As many of you know, usually this would be a time when I say, turn open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, since that's where our study has been. But this morning, we're not going to do that uh, because we're entering a new sermon series, and it's going to be a four-week series on the distinctives of our church. So... In the following weeks, you'll hear from some of the other pastors. I'll start off our series today by focusing on our first distinctive. Some of you might be wondering what a distinctive is, and so I should probably explain that. And on the one hand, I guess I could say that a distinctive is something that makes our church distinct, we think. But then again, that's kind of like using a word to define a word, so that's not very helpful, right? So... Here's the best way to think about a distinctive. Think of it as a biblically grounded belief that significantly influences how we approach ministry and do ministry. It's a biblically grounded belief that significantly influences how we approach ministry and how we do ministry. Now, there are many other things that we as a church believe are important aside from these four distinctives. Lots of things, actually, which is why we have a statement of faith, as well as a list of things that our leadership teaches on a whole host of topics listed on our website. But the fact is that not everything we believe ends up influencing ministry to the same extent on a practical and personal level. So think about a ship, if it helps. Okay, Now, there are a lot of important pieces to a ship. You need a bow. You need a keel, and you need a hole for the ship to float. You also need an anchor, don't you, to hold the ship in place from time to time. But you also need an engine and a propeller, right, or else the ship isn't going to go anywhere. Think of the distinctives like a rudder for our church. You can have a boat without a rudder, but you won't have very much direction, will you? That's how our distinctives work. They give direction to how we do a lot of things how we disciple, how we counsel, how we uh, approach Sunday mornings in worship, how we operate in our life groups and what we do there, and so on. Now again, there's a lot of very important things that we think Christians should know, and we believe in understanding and rightly dividing all of God's word and knowing the whole counsel of God's word. I could provide countless examples. We could mention something like that we think it's important to holding a biblical view of church government, right? But the fact is, we know this, that when someone's boss chews them out at work or when they get into an argument with their spouse or when someone happens to pass away who is dearly beloved, let's be clear, church government is probably not the first thing that they're going to think about. Similarly, we could talk about governmental authority in the world and Certainly, in the light of COVID-19, that is a subject that we have given a lot more thought to on an an individual level, right? 
uh, as the government sought to restrict certain personal freedoms and liberties. So people wondered, you know, when is it time? Is there a time to exercise civil disobedience? And, and again, it's an important matter. It's an important subject, but it's also a highly specific question that impacts some people a lot more than others. And that's not necessarily what we're striving for in regards to the distinctives. What we want them to represent are convictions that we hope will permeate every aspect of a believer's life in everything they do. So that's a little bit about our distinctives. And with that said, here's how we're going to uh, cover them. Uh, this week, I'll preach on the first distinctive of our church, which is that we are centered on the gospel or gospel-centered. Then next week, Pastor Joe will preach on the second distinctive, which is that we are grounded in truth. Then Philip Reeves, our worship leader, will come and preach on the third distinctive, which is that we are delighted in worship. And then finally, Pastor Adam will preach on the last distinctive, which is that we are missional and lifestyle. So that's a map for the next four weeks. And with that, let's dive into the first distinctive, which is that we are centered on the gospel or gospel-centered. And if you're a note-taker, very simple outline this morning. I'm going to give you four reasons why we as a church are gospel-centered. Four reasons why we as a church are gospel-centered. So what are those? Let's begin with this this morning. We are gospel-centered because God saves people with the gospel. We are gospel-centered because God saves people with the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we had a dear friend here joining us, Pastor Ben Tellinghusen from uh, what was my sending church out in Michigan, and he preached on the verse I'm going to mention this morning, Romans 1, 16, but I think it's worth going back and just remembering what we heard. Consider what Paul says in Romans 1, 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek now, I know I don't need to tell you this, but we make a terrible mess of our lives, don't we? Just a terrible mess. And there's a reason we make a terrible mess of our lives. It's because from the moment we're born into the world, we have hearts that do not comprehend the things of God. Hard hearts, rebellious hearts, selfish hearts, sin-filled hearts. And because of it, we make decisions that drive our lives into the ground and defy the commandments of God. And, and what do we deserve for it? Well, the Bible's very clear in this, that what we deserve is the punishment of God. We deserve God's wrath upon our lives. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. What we have earned, each one of us, for our rebellious acts against God is his perfect and righteous wrath. So that's the bad news, right? That's the bad news. The good news, though, and there's lots of good news, is that God does something absolutely incredible with the gospel and that he uses it to save us from this certain fate. And he does this by doing a number of remarkable things. He, he uses the gospel to open our eyes to the depths of our sin. He, he uses the gospel to give us a, a new heart to love God, one that's sensitive to the things of God. He, he removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He, he breaks the bonds of sin, 
where once we were slaves to sin, God makes us a slave of His, a servant of His. And of course, by doing all of this, He brings us into His eternal safety and joy. But nothing else does this other than the gospel. No other message does this. This week, you no doubt heard, heard plenty of news. Whether it was you watching the TV, whether it was you listening to a podcast, but no news you heard this week is anything like the news of the gospel. And it's astonishing to think about, especially since the gospel is so simple, right? It's just so simple. God is holy. Man is sinful. Jesus died for sinners. And you can be forgiven if you place your faith in Jesus. That's the message. Not, not rocket science, right? Don't need an engine, engineer to make sense of this. Don't, make, don't need a computer science grad to make sense of this. Don't need a hacker to make sense of this. So simple a child can understand it and articulate it. And yet by that one simple message, think of all that God does. He regenerates. He redeems. He justifies. He seals. And he satisfies. He does all of those things. Some of those might be some unfamiliar terms, and you're thinking, what do you mean by those? Let me explain. He regenerates. Again, I just mentioned we're born into this world with these hard hearts. We're actually born, and we have spiritual corpses. We're completely spiritually dead. So God needs to regenerate us. He needs to give us life. He does that through the gospel. He makes what was no relationship with God into a relationship with God by giving us, again, a heart that desires to know God. He gives us spiritual life. He redeems. He, he pays for our debt in full, 100%. He, he rescues us, again, from the slavery that we were once in. He justifies us by the gospel. God can look at us because of what Christ has done and through faith in Jesus, God can say, you're not guilty. And it's profound because, because we can think of plenty of things for which this week we will fail at and things last week that we failed at and so we're going, but we are guilty, right? No. Through faith in Jesus, God sees you with the perfect, spotless, righteousness of Christ. You're clothed in that. He seals us. He seals us. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. He imparts the Holy Spirit, takes up residency in our lives to continually change and transform us into the person and into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, we are always God's. We are always his. And we are satisfied by his love and by our relationship with him. And who is responsible for sharing this amazing message? We are the church. The New York Times does not have the responsibility to share the gospel. We do. Fox News does not have this responsibility. We do. 
CNN, the Wall Street Journal, right? We could mention all of the news outlets. They do not have the responsibility for publishing and proclaiming the gospel. We, the church, do. And so we must. Because without this message, no one will know or experience salvation. Think of what Paul says in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, people will go to hell if they do not hear the gospel. Let me be clear, they do not go to hell for failing to hear the gospel as though God would ever punish someone for something they had no control over. Everyone is punished for their rebellion and their sin against God, but there's no hope of salvation for anyone unless they hear the message of Christ. And Paul makes that clear, doesn't he? Because the argument is, how will they believe in whom they have never heard? They can't. And so when God says, who's going to go? Who's going to preach this message? What's our response? Here we are, Lord. Send us. Send us. Because we know that this gospel has power. And in the same way that it transformed us, we know that it can transform others. We have the keys of eternal life. Send us, Lord. And we're ready to go because we know that no matter how far someone is from God, there is always hope because of the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel like I'm so far from God. I don't know that there's any hope for me. Oh yeah, there is. There's absolutely nothing that you have ever done that God could not possibly forgive. That's the depths of Christ's work. Search the scripture and you will be amazed at who God saves. <laughs> Murderers, fornicators, idolaters, people who struggle with anger and bitterness and jealousy and so on. And praise God that he does because if he didn't, this would be a pretty empty room right now, wouldn't it? And this brings me to my second point this morning about why we are gospel-centered, and it's very related to this first point, and it's this. We are gospel-centered because nothing is more important than the gospel. We are gospel-centered because nothing is more important than the gospel. Now, obviously, I expect that that's quite self-evident based on what I just said, but here's now what I want to highlight. I just want to pose a question, really, to think about. We know the gospel's important. What happens if any part of this message is altered in any way? What if we just begin to assume it and it doesn't, it just, it, it doesn't occupy our attention and we just let things slip on this message a bit? Let me read from Galatians 1, where Paul writes in Galatians 1, starting in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's just fascinating that Paul himself puts himself under condemnation if he changes the message. I gave this message to you. You received this message. If I even start to alter the message that I've already given to you, then I am accursed. And if an angel shows up, and it's funny because when you study cults, right, it's always, there's always an angel, right? It seems there's a vision, there's an angel. Somebody comes and says, hey, you should know this. Here's some added revelation. This Jesus thing is good. Here's some other things for you to do, right? Paul says, no, that can't ever happen. If that ever happens, whoever just gave you that message, let them be accursed. Listen, there are many things that you can change in the church, like a whole bunch of things. You can change the style of your music, though we wouldn't do that because our music's great. Thank you, Phil. You do a great job with the song selection. You can change the name of your youth group. Make it some cool name. Hipsters for Jesus. I don't know. You can change the architecture of your building. You want a steeple? Cool. You want to be in a strip mall? Cool. Doesn't matter. You can change that. But you cannot change the gospel because the moment you do, you become an irrelevant ministry. You become an irrelevant ministry since you cease to be a church. It's that defining. It's interesting how many people you can talk to, right? And, and they'll talk about churches almost exclusively in terms of a building or a group of people that gets together on Sundays. How many churches would you say are in that community? And, and someone will think to themselves, well, how many buildings are there, right? But that's not how it works. Not from God's vantage point. Not from God's perspective. Because you need to establish one thing if you want to know the answer to how many churches there are. And the question is, how many of them still preach the gospel? How many of them are still willing to say that there's only one way to God? Not everyone goes to heaven. It's not the default position. And those who reject Christ go to hell. Because here's the deal, if anyone rejects that mass message, no matter what they might want to call themselves, they are not a church. And, and again, even worse, what more? Sadly, they stand under the judgment of God. They are accursed. The gospel is not whatever someone wants it to be. The gospel is a message that has already been defined by God. And there are objective truths, unchangeable truths that are connected to it. And this is a message that God has given to us as the church, as I just mentioned. And we have the responsibility to preach it and pass it on to others without alteration. If you need a picture, just think of yourself, Christian, as a waiter. You don't cook up the food, you don't throw in the ingredients. You just take the food and you get it to the table. That's it. That's what we exist to do. You don't even put a Danish on the plate, okay? Just preach the gospel without changing it. 
So important is the message of the gospel that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. Listen to this. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, I love that. It's like he's saying, check it out. Check my sources. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The words I want you to take to heart are these, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul taught the Corinthian church many doctrines, many truths, but not all of them rose to the level of first importance, did they? But what did? Clearly, the gospel, the news about Jesus' death for sin, his burial, and his resurrection. Friends, there are all sorts of doctrines that Christians can and and do disagree on, What happens at the end of the current age and the return of Christ? What kind of spiritual gifts are operative today? What is a biblical church government? How should we think about the ordinances? What does baptism represent? Sprinkle or dunk? Does it become the body of Christ in communion? By the way, the answer is no. Um, But listen, we can disagree on that. All sorts of things that Christians can disagree about. But one thing you can't disagree about is the gospel. Because you can be wrong on these other things and still be a Christian. You cannot be wrong about the gospel and still be a Christian. Completely impossible. Again, doesn't mean the other doctrines are unimportant. Don't hear me say that whatsoever. If you think that's what I'm saying, you don't know me. We think the whole counsel of God is important. Every word, every sentence, every verse, every paragraph, every chapter, every book, it's all inspired by God. It's all profitable, we're told. It's all necessary to thoroughly equip the people of God for his work, okay? But again, the moment you change the gospel, you're not a Christian. You can't deny the miracles of Jesus and be a Christian. You can't deny the virgin birth and be a Christian. You can't deny the deity of Christ and be a Christian. You can't deny the Trinity and be a Christian. You can't believe you're saved by your works and be a Christian. No set of truths is more important than the gospel, which is why we are gospel-centered. Well, in the last two points, you may have noticed that there's been a special focus on the gospel's connection to salvation. But now I want us to think about another aspect of the gospel's work, its connection to sanctification. That is the work of God conforming us to Jesus Christ. So here's my third reason why we are gospel-centered. Third, we are gospel-centered because a gospel identity is required for gospel obedience. 
We are gospel-centered because a gospel identity is required for godly obedience. Herman Ritterboss is a name that I would not expect many, if any of you, to know. And there won't be an exam next week and you don't need to remember the name. But you should know something that he highlighted in his ministry as a Dutch theologian. He is a man who has shed light into Paul's theology by pointing out that the imperatives of Scripture, that is to say what we are to do for God, rest on the indicatives, who we are in our relationship with God. And the order, he says, is not reversible. The order is not reversible. In other words, identity in Christ necessarily precedes and comes before obedience to God, though the two certainly go hand in hand. And I want to point out this pattern in just a couple of places. The first place I want us to think about this is from 1 Peter chapter 1. Many of you are familiar with Peter. You loved this book. It's a book written to encourage suffering Christians who are experiencing great persecution. Peter opens up his letter by encouraging them about how blessed they are and what they have received as believers He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Glorious truths. God's made you a child of his. Again, as we talked about earlier, he regenerated you. He gave you life. And you have a hope that can't be taken away. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what happens to you, you have an inheritance that can't be, can't be taken by some thief, can't corrupt. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to rust out like your car and your bumper falls off, right? It's secure. So that's how Peter opens. Shortly thereafter, though, what else does he say? Well, eventually he gets into a whole bunch of imperatives, commands, where he's going to exhort Christians, live like this, do this, think like this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Okay? We see imperatives. What are the imperatives? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be holy. But what is the basis for these imperatives or commands? The fact that they are children of God. They're obedient children. But he's calling them to obedience. But they're obedient children. Well, yeah, we're not perfectly obedient as Christians. But guess what? God's given us a heart that's inclined towards obedience. Think about the miracle of salvation. The Reformers did a great job of articulating how God changes us in salvation. We could talk about how before God saves us, okay, that we have no ability not to sin. We have no ability not to sin. Then Jesus Christ saves us, and giving us a new heart, he makes us able to sin and able not to sin. One day, imagine this, it's just a miracle, like we really cannot even comprehend this, one day we'll be unable to sin. 
because we're going to have glorified bodies. But at the present, you're able to sin. You're able not to sin. Overall, though, as God looks at you, you're his child. You're, you're an obedient child. You have a heart to obey, though, obviously, you will also fall short of that. Ephesians 5, verse 1 points this out again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, notice the imperatives, right? What are they? Be imitators of God. Walk in love. Live like this. Do this. But in what manner? As beloved children. So in 1 Peter, looked at Christians as obedient children. Now in Ephesians, they're beloved children. Let's just saturate our minds for a moment that word beloved. You are loved. You are loved with the infinite love of God if you're his child. You are loved with God's perfect love, God's unfailing love, God's faithful love, his steadfast love. As we sang about this morning, his everlasting love, let that be our song, right? That's how God stands in relationship to you if you are a Christian. He loves you. And this is so important for God to communicate. As an illustration this morning, I just want you to think about how drastically someone's behavior might be modified by their identity and what someone says to them. To illustrate this for a minute, let's just assume that you have a friend who does something that hurts you in some major way or embarrasses you rather significantly. Now let's say you go to them and you say, well, you are an awful friend. You're just an awful person. Don't ever do that again. Compare that with a different approach. Imagine that you instead said, listen, I love you and you are my beloved friend, but don't ever do that again. Is there a bit of a difference? Of course, right? Because in the former way that you approached or the friend approached their friend, there's shame, there's guilt, there's despair, there's hopelessness. But in the second, it's like, hey, my friend doesn't like what I did, but they still love me. We're still cool. Everything's okay, right? That's how God communicates with us. He reminds us continually of where we stand in relationship with him. And at the same time, he calls us to obedience by his commands. It's as if God is constantly saying to us, you must realize who you are before you serve me. You must realize who you are before you serve me. And, and we ask, why does God do it like this? But it's quite simple. It's to keep us from legalistic living to keep us from legalistic living. We are legalists to the core. Everything about us. We are so caught up in connecting our identity to the things that we do. I could give you a lot of examples this morning. Let me just give you a couple of them. Just imagine someone comes to you this morning and, and says, well, hey, uh, who are you? You might say, you know, I'm Joe. And Sorry, I'm not picking on you, Joe. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to say a name and somebody's ears he's talking about me. Um, I'm Joe, you know, I'm a carpenter. 
I'm an engineer. I'm a farmer. It's one of the first things that's going to come out of, out of your mouth. What are you connecting your identity to? Things you do, right? Your work. And as far as things go, that's rather harmless, okay? Don't feel bad if you <laughs> mention that this morning. Yeah, I'm an engineer. I'm an architect. Whatever it might be, right? But now let's think about another scenario. Let's say you fail an exam, or you lose your job, or you get cut from a sports team. Well, where do your thoughts go? Gosh, I'm dumb. Man, I'm such a failure, such a total loser. And so what do you do? Again, you connect your identity to your performance. Now, that's not a good thing ever, but it's especially not a good thing when you do this with your relationship with God and when that kind of thinking seeps into your relationship with God because what happens? Well, it, it, it looks something like this. You'll go to church, you'll pray, you'll read your Bible, and then you'll start to think, hey, God and I, we're cool, we're good. But then we'll leave church and sin against God in some way, and then we'll start to think, man, God must be pretty upset with me. We might even think to ourselves, I bet he doesn't even love me. We're like that, you know, God's speaking the thunder. We'll think he doesn't even love me. We're like that uh, person in, in their romance. He loves me. He loves me not. And they're, you know, pulling off the rose petals. But we don't need to do that with God. We don't have to be constantly wavering and go, does he love me? Does he love me not? Because when we look at Scripture, it reminds us of who we are and that we are beloved children of his. Listen, Christian, I realize you're going to leave here this week. You're going to do some things that you regret. Not your heart. You're going to feel shame. You're going to feel remorse. You're going to question God's love. You don't need to do that. God's love is unchanging towards you. He loves you just as much in the one hour that you're worshiping here right now as he loves you in that one hour that you struggle with that great temptation you're facing. Unaffected. We need to kind of distinguish, right, God's view of us as opposed to the thing that we do. And there is a distinction. God can ethically look at all these things and go, yeah, that's wrong, and that displeases me on an ethical level, right? But we're loved in Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor, that is dangerous to say. That is dangerous to say because, I mean, if you tell people that God loves them no matter what they do, then aren't you just encouraging people to go out and sin all the more? And I don't need to worry about that on the one hand because the fact is Scripture makes abundantly clear that if you love God, you're going to want to keep his commands. We do not need to be threatened by rejoicing in the love of God. It ought to fill our hearts with joy every minute of every day. Thinking on God's love is oxygen to our souls, and it motivates our works with a heart of gratitude. 
That's important, right? Again, this guards us from legalistic thinking. Because if we start to get into that pattern of going, well, if I do this, then God's going to be happy. And if I don't do this, well, then we're not good. Legalistic thinking, everything you do is just trying to get back into that good place with God. Jesus has taken care of all of that. Past, present, future, sin has been dealt with in full at the cross. There is no fear of judgment. Just a great delight of salvation that God has wrought. Legalism is so sneaky, it can even taint what we see when we read the Bible. Brian Chapel, some of you are familiar with him. Uh, he's a well-known pastor and writer, and he actually has a helpful story in this regard. In one of his sermons I listened to this week, he mentioned how drastically he misunderstood Romans 12:1 for a season of his life because of his legalistic thinking. You might be familiar with that verse. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. For years, Chapel said that what he saw Paul saying was, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, then you will be holy and acceptable to God. But that's not what Paul is saying, is it? He didn't say, honor God with your bodies to become holy. He said, honor God with your bodies because you are holy. You are holy. So identity first and obedience follows. And as I say this, I just want to clarify something here because certainly there are some out there who in the name of gospel-centered living have kind of maintained the perspective, well, you don't need to worry about obedience. Just look at the cross, think about the gospel, think about your identity, and that's enough, and then eventually obedience will just be natural. But that's not actually the picture of sanctification. And actually, there's a name for that idea. It's called antinomianism which is kind of the idea that you just let go and let God and sanctification is just completely passive. It's as though there's no effort to it. But friends, sanctification is not passive. It is extremely active and difficult as we are called to deny ourselves, to mortify our flesh, and to put sin to death. Think about what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Painful! Fighting sin is hard. Fighting sin is painful. And so I just don't want you to expect that your desires are simply just going to magically realign as you think about your identity in Christ until eventually you're just always going to want to obey. <laughs> will God change you as you dwell on the gospel? Certainly. But there will be many, many times when you will feel like doing something that God doesn't want you to do, and there will be many, many times when you do not want to do something that God wants you to do. And in those times, what should you do? By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Do as Paul says in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that is the third reason we are gospel-centered. Now to the fourth. The fourth reason we are gospel-centered is this, because all Scripture has a gospel hope. All of Scripture has a gospel hope. It's helpful to consider that the Bible has one overarching redemptive storyline or narrative to it. And interestingly, much of the story actually occurs in the beginning of the Bible. This is why we as Christians should just so value Genesis. It's vital to our theology, to our understanding of God and our relationship with Him. You read Genesis, and what do you notice? The first thing, God creates God creates. Then a couple of chapters later, you get to Genesis 3, and then you have a fall. 
And from that moment, the whole world just becomes so completely spiritually bankrupt. Then you have a promise, though, given in Genesis 3.15. You have the promise that God gives that though the woman has been deceived by the serpent, and though he has, in a sense, he has, though he has brought death, right, obviously through the woman is going to become a descendant, and there's going to be a tragic ending for the serpent. The descendant of the woman is going to be struck on his heel by the serpent, but the serpent, <laughs> he's going to be crushed on his head by a heel. So there's a redeemer that's promised. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, here's ultimately the questions that people are asking. Well, when will he come and who will it be? When will he come and who will it be? Will it be Adam and Eve's near descendants? Will it be Abel? No. Will it be Seth? No. Will it be a Noah? No. Will it be Abraham? No. But we learn some new details when Abraham arrives. We're told that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So we know the Redeemer or Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham. And then the story continues. Will it be Isaac? No. Will it be Jacob? No. Will it be Joseph? No. We know what happens after Joseph. 400 years later, the people of Israel are in captivity in Egypt and still asking the question, when will he come? Who will it be? Moses arrives on the scene, and he shows great promise of being this deliverer. But is he? Again, the answer is no. But again, Moses gives us some insights into who this deliverer will be. He talks about a prophet who will be raised up after him. So one day, there's going to be a new Moses, Moses says. Fast forward farther, and you enter a time known as the time of the judges, right? And things are pretty ugly in judges. Things go from bad to worse. It's just a burning trash heap when you look at judges and the people cry out for deliverance and God responds and he shows them compassion and he sends various deliverers and the people think will it be Gideon no will it be Samson no and then eventually something amazing happens around a thousand BC when God reunites Israel under a monarchy and then the people start to wonder will it be Saul no will it be David no but again, we're told new information about this deliverer when David comes because God makes a promise to him, a magnificent and glorious promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's an unconditional promise given by God. God is saying, I'm going to do this. I will do this. And so after the promise is given, then, of course, people are wondering, well, is it going to be Solomon? <laughs> no. And Solomon shows great promise at the beginning, but we know what happens is his heart is led astray as he takes to himself many foreign wives. I was just reading about Solomon this week. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can you try, like, just imagine how that marital relationship was? Awful. And so the people wait longer after Solomon as more prophets are sent to Israel, and Haggai comes, and Zechariah comes, and Malachi comes, and we have all of these prophets known as minor prophets, and then things go silent for 400 years as people continue to wonder, 
Well, when will this Redeemer come and who will it be? Now, I could go on, but you know where the search finally ends, right? It ends with the arrival of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is a son of Adam, who is a son of Abraham, who is a new Moses. He is the prophet Moses spoke of. He is the son of David. And because of this, all of Scripture is connected to a gospel hope. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, and restoration or recreation, however you want to think about it. That's the main overarching story of the Bible. And so, this is what you need to know. Every time we open the Bible, we're always asking, how does, how does this book that we're in connect to this story? And what does this, what does this passage have to say to us as God's new covenant people, as believers in Jesus Christ, who are now 2,000 years removed from Christ, being able to look back on what he did for us, right? Now, I want to be clear about something, that this does not mean that Jesus Christ is the meaning of every text or that every text points to Jesus. But he is the climax of the biblical storyline and the one that provides significance to everything that we look at. And I need to mention this because in the last several years, there has been a lot of discussion about Christ-centered preaching, which many often use as a synonym for gospel-centered preaching. But not all of that has been positive because some, in the name of gospel-centered preaching, have attempted to make Jesus the main point of every passage when he clearly is not. Abner Chow, who's a professor at the Master's Seminary, wrote a journal article a couple of years ago on what is known as Christocentric, as a Christocentric hermeneutic, which is present in some so-called gospel preaching. Not all, but some. And I want to just read an excerpt from his article because in it he provides many examples of how people wrongly get to Jesus from certain biblical texts. Listen to this. Some say... Darkness surrounding Abram at the founding of the Abrahamic covenant parallels Christ's own darkness at the cross. Israel's exodus is a faint shadow of the spiritual exodus believers experience in Christ. Achan's trouble and punitive death correlates with Jesus' own death on a cross. Samson's rejection by his tribe mirrors how Jesus would be rejected. Samson's victorious death is a picture of the victorious death of one who would not fail as Samson did. David and Goliath become a picture of how the ultimate David would vanquish sin, Satan, and death because all of those are derivations of how the seed would crush the serpent's head. Furthermore, just as David's men brought him water that was precious, so the new David brings us the precious water of life. David's refusal to curse back when cursed in 2 Samuel chapter 16 mirrors the Messiah who is also subjected to curse without resistance. Naboth's death at the hand of false witnesses parallels Jesus' own death with false witnesses. Esther's willingness to lay down her life foreshadows the readiness of Christ to do the same with his own life. But these are some of the ways that people get to Jesus wrongly from certain Old Testament texts, and maybe some of you are saying, well, why is it such a big deal? But here's why, because we do not have a license to make connections to Jesus that the biblical authors themselves did not want us to make. It's really that simple. And certainly there are types and shadows and illusions and all the more in the Bible, but not every author intended to speak specifically about Jesus Christ, and so we must be careful not to fit him in wherever we please. We do not have that kind of a license. And so here's how we approach the Bible. We apply what's known as a grammatical, a literal grammatical historical method of interpretation, and that always begins with one all-important question. 
what did the biblical authors intend to communicate by what they wrote to their listeners? Or said another way, what did the authors mean by what they said? And once we've done this, well then, yes, we can run to Jesus because we understand how what these authors were speaking about connects to the overarching narrative. So, we're gospel-centered. We will remain gospel-centered. It is vital, and we can never be a healthy ministry if we are not gospel-centered. And hopefully today, some of the things I've mentioned help you understand why we are gospel-centered and why it's one of our distinctives. For through the gospel, God saves. And through the gospel, he reminds us of our identity. And through the gospel, every passage of Scripture finds its significance. And may God encourage your hearts this week as you contemplate the glorious miracle of salvation made possible through the gospel. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.